here this morning and hear uh, the rain falling outside. It's reminding us of that promise of how you send the rain to accomplish its purposes in the same way you send your word, which will accomplish its purpose. It will never return to you without doing so. And Lord, we trust that indeed this morning you will be applying your word to our lives in such a way that you are actively sanctifying us, setting us apart that we might belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, we're looking at Mark chapter 2 this morning. We're going to read uh, verses 18 of 2.18 through chapter 3, verse 6. So I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, and the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins." One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? Years ago, I heard a story about a, a man and his first Christmas celebrating with his new wife. And uh, on that day, she was preparing a Christmas ham and noticed that he had cut the ends off the ham. And when he asked her why she had done that, she looked at him puzzled, as if everyone should know the answer to that, but that's just the way you're supposed to do it. That's the way my mother had taught me to do it. And uh, so a year went by, and they, had, uh, they were celebrating Christmas at her parents' house, and he made a point to go in the kitchen and watch her mother prepare the Christmas ham. And sure enough, she cuts the ends off the ham and discards them. And he looks at her and, and simply asks, why do you cut the ends off the ham, hoping that he might find out the answer? And she looks at him and says, well, that's the way my mother taught me to do it. So another year goes by. They celebrate Christmas with his wife's 
grandparents, and he goes into the kitchen to watch her grandmother prepare the ham, and sure enough, she cuts the ends off the ham too. And he asks, you know, a bit about to give up, why do you cut the ends off the ham? And he, she looks at him gently and points to her, her old antique oven and says, well, son, that's the only way I can get it to fit in the oven. And the story is meant to show how sometimes tradition can actually get in the way of what we're ultimately trying to accomplish. Uh, Rather than being the instrument of arriving where you want to go, it becomes a barrier to ever getting there in the first place. And that's really what we're seeing illustrated in this passage as we look at uh, two incidents where the people are, are commenting on the traditions that they have been following. And those traditions have become obstacles to seeing the very person who's before them. Their traditions were meant to help foster their relationship with God, and instead it becomes obstacles to even having one at all. And so we take note of that to see how it is that Jesus is gently prodding them and us, inviting us to see exactly who is He and how do we have a relationship with Him. And as He, as he instructs them, he, he, he shows them a couple of different things. He, one, He reveals Himself to be, first of all, He reveals Himself to be the bridegroom, and then He reveals Himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, and He instructs us that we have to put new wine in new wineskins if we're going to move from the old relationship to the new. So that's where we're going to go this morning as we look at how is it that God has revealed how we have a relationship with Him. So we begin by looking at this first scene where we see Jesus talking about of fasting. That's the question that comes to him in chapter uh, 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It's a legitimate question, but Jesus' answer is a little unusual. He doesn't really answer it directly. Instead, he, makes, he, he says this, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So he's talking about bridegrooms, which implies weddings, and he's talking about fasting. And of course, that makes sense. Nobody fasts at a wedding. Have you ever been to a large wedding? And uh, after the wedding, when you go to the reception, have you ever been to one that didn't have any food? Probably not, unless the the father of the bride was just really cheap. (laughs) He wanted the cheaper chicken, as it were, right? So we feast at a wedding. This is a time to celebrate. That's what it's for. And if you were to fast during the wedding feast itself, that would be an insult to the host. It's not something that you do because it's, it's marking out a time that we are meant to celebrate. So, of course, you have to feast rather than fast. Now, that doesn't exactly answer the question of why do your not, disciples not fast unless we understand that Jesus is making a clear declaration that here He is what He's calling the bridegroom, implying there is some wedding that is coming. Now, now that's language that's a little bit perhaps puzzling for those who are hearing to understand, although the concept of a wedding in regard to a relationship with God wasn't a foreign concept. That was a familiar analogy that the Old Testament prophets used at times. Uh, we read it, for example, in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, uh, the prophet writes this, when God, uh, he comments about God saying this, when I passed by you, that is Israel, 
again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness, and I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord your God, and you became mine. There's this picture at the time when he brought them out of Egypt and brought them to the, the mountain at Sinai where he enters into this covenant, and here he's likening that covenant to a marriage covenant. So it is a familiar concept about this. The book of Hosea, of course, he is instructing the prophet Hosea to take a wife, and the analogy of his relationship with his wife is like that with, with God's bride, between God and his bride of Israel. Of course, the sad story of Hosea is that he's taking a wife who's going to be unfaithful to him, and the point is that God's wife, whom he has married, has been unfaithful to the Lord, and it's a tragedy. Jeremiah, in, in chapter 31, he comments on this whole idea, this, this, this notion that Israel has been an unfaithful wife to the Lord. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." The understanding is that the relationship that's, going, that's meant to exist between God and His people is like that that exists between a husband and a wife. Now, New Testament writers, they certainly picked up on this idea. We turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and Paul is talking about, uh, he's giving instructions between husbands and wives and how they are to relate, and the key to understanding how they are to relate is how Jesus is, meant, is relating to His bride where He has gone to the great lengths of sacrificing Himself in order to make her clean and beautiful. So there's this comparison that between Jesus and the, the new bride, which is the church, which is like the, the comparison between the, the old bride of Israel and God in the Old Testament. So when, when Jesus is responding to their invitation of why His disciples don't fast, He's not just explaining why they don't fast. He's really ultimately saying that, look, I am the bridegroom. I am equal with the Father who has come to be with my bride. So it would make sense, of course the disciples cannot fast while I'm here, implying that the reason that they fast in the first place is because they're not yet experiencing the relationship that God intended them to experience. There is still an absence from the bridegroom. Now, in the Old Testament, in terms of instructions for fasting, there's really only one required time in which they were to fast. There's lots of times in which they were invited to voluntarily fast, but there was one that was required, and it was on the Day of Atonement. You read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. On the Day of Atonement, it happened once a year, and it was when the priest uh, brought two goats before the people, and they sacrificed one to demonstrate this is what happens as a result of your unfaithfulness to me that requires death, a sacrifice, a blood spilling. And as the priest confesses the sins on the head of the other, the other one is led outside of the camp to show that he is carrying away their guilt outside of the camp, away from their presence, so that they might be made clean. And on that day, because it is a grievous, mournful day, they are to fast. Now, it is interesting what Jesus says, even in this response, as you look at it, when He says,
As long as you have the bridegroom, excuse me, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the kingdom is, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So there is a likening as if it's not only that Jesus is the bridegroom, but there is a day that is appropriate to fast, like there was in the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. There is a day coming when the bridegroom is being taken away, just as that scapegoat in the Old Testament was being carried outside the wilderness, bearing the guilt of the people of God, just like that goat was sacrificed on the altar to show what their uncleanness and unfaithfulness deserved. There is a day coming when you will fast because the bridegroom is being taken away, just as they, on that day of atonement to be made. He's saying to you, I am your bridegroom. There is this idea that you are intended to have a relationship that is one of intimacy with the Lord. And the way that you do that is by seeing the bridegroom which is before you. The second uh, sign that he gives us, or the second invitation for, to see him, comes in the next two accounts as we read them uh, together from Mark chapter 2, verses 23 and, and Mark chapter 3, as he talks about uh, what happens with regard to the Sabbath. What, what happens with regard to the, the Sabbath, we pick up in verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In the next encounter, Mark puts this, puts this, uh, uh, this account together. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to, them on the, uh, said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So here we have another account in which Jesus is doing something that appears to violate what they practice normally, their traditions. First, it was with regard to how they fast, and Jesus isn't fasting like they're fasting, and now it's the keeping of the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is, an, is another interesting thing to consider and to, to look at how it was in the first century. They were practicing the Sabbath. For the Sabbath instruction comes to us in the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. So if you were to look, for example, in Exodus chapter 20, he says, on six days you shall do all your labor, but the seventh is a day that is set apart. On that day you shall do no rest. It is a Sabbath day, not you, nor your ox, or your donkey, or, or your, your manservant, or your female servant, or anyone who was within your house, you shall make it a day of rest. For in six days the Lord created the earth, on the seventh day He rested from His labor. So there's this idea that you are to be with me, you are to be like me in resting on this Sabbath day. That's the commandment. In, that, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's a repetition of the Ten Commandments, but there's a, a a slight difference in the reason given. And the reason for doing that is because you were once slaves in Egypt. 
and I brought you out and brought you to myself. So there is a specific instruction that you are to stop and rest on the seventh day and reflect upon the fact that I am the Creator and I am the Redeemer, that I have brought you to myself. This was, this was the instruction of the Sabbath, so you are not to work on the Sabbath. Now, the Jews wanted to be good Jews. They wanted to be faithful to the Lord's teaching, and so they had sought to try and define, well, what exactly constitutes His work so that we can make sure that we are protecting from violating this Sabbath commandment. So, many traditions had come about throughout the years that they were sought to keep in order to make sure that they weren't violating the Sabbath. Some of those, some of those instructions were, are quite interesting. So, for example, there was a limited number of steps that you could take on the Sabbath day away from your home. Now, there was, it was interesting, once they had codified this tradition of how many steps you can take, and I'm not quite sure how many it was, maybe around 2,000 steps or just a little under, you could actually go more if you took enough time to prepare some food and you put it in that place that was, you know, 1,999 steps away. If you walked to there, as long as you sat down and you ate some food, that would be like being back at home, then you could walk another 1,999 steps. So they were finding ways that they could keep the law and still do the very things they wanted to do. You had to be careful and you couldn't spit outside lest your spit germinate a seed in the soil. You weren't supposed to bathe on the Sabbath lest the water that runs off you might accidentally wash the floor. So you see there's all kinds of traditions they were keeping in order to protect the law. In other words, they wanted to be right with God. They wanted to make sure and obeyed the law. And so they created all of these traditions. It, you know, later on, after the time of Jesus, one of, these, one, one of the rabbis sought to write out all the traditions that had been codified through the years, and they, they created this document called the, the Talmud. You could find it. And there's actually 24 chapters describing the Sabbath laws, all derived from this one commandment. And later on, there's another rabbi who was reading through the Talmud, and he, spends, he, he, he brags about spending two years trying to... Uh, identify all the minutiae just from one chapter of the Talmud. So you can, you can see the great depth they're going to in order to make sure they understand how to keep this law by laying down specific traditions. So here in the synagogue or in the place where they are seeing Jesus doing things on the Sabbath, and they're, they're curious, you're doing things that don't go along with our tradition. Now, that's a problem if you think about them thinking of who the Messiah is meant to be. The Messiah is meant to be a holy one. The Messiah is supposed to be the one who is more righteous than all the other people. So if this man, who certainly seems to be making all these claims to be the Messiah, is yet doing things that would show he is not as righteous as even we are, how can he possibly be the Messiah? Now, Jesus makes some interesting responses as he looks at them. So, for example, in the first one, he says, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. I mean, that's a, again, it's an interesting response because he's not directly talking about the Sabbath, he's talking about bread specifically the bread of the presence. Now, this event happened in 1 Samuel 21. You can read about it when David was fleeing Saul, and he had to flee so quickly he couldn't even go back to his home to get 
his gear or to get any food. So he goes to this place where the high priest is, where, they have, where they've been worshiping the Lord, where Abiathar is, and he asks him for this bread. Can I eat this bread? Abiathar gets something about the bread. Yes, it's been consecrated for only the priest to eat, but why, is, why do we have the bread? It's meant to be a symbol of life that God has given for the people. So if he withholds it from David, he's withholding life in this particular circumstance, which likens itself to understanding, well, why do we have the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath for? And he tells us very plainly, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to be a blessing. It's a gift that God has given to you. You have made it a burden of work, but it was meant to be a gift. It was meant to be a blessing. And of course, when you think about those Ten Commandments and when they were given, they were given to the people of Israel after God had just brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They'd been slaves for 400 years. How many days off do you think they got in those 400 years of slavery? Probably not many. Maybe if they were on their deathbed, they might have given them a day off, but probably not. So they didn't know what it was to have rest, to take a day off. All they knew was work, work, work. So when God brings them to Himself and He gives them this as a commandment, six days you shall work, and one day is a day of rest. I don't think they would have heard that as a burden, but as a blessing. And in both cases, what we see happening is the tradition that the Jews are holding to has become the very blinders from seeing the one that stands before them. Because he's not following their traditions, they don't see him as the promised Messiah. When instead, he's saying right to them and explaining, I am the bridegroom. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And by the way, when he says that, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, he is making a statement that I and the Father are one. I have the authority of the Father. The Sabbath is mine to command. It is mine to give rest is why we read in Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is something that only God gives. Rest. I will give you rest. So, how do we engage in the relationship that God desires for His people? Well, the instruction, he's, he, in, in essence, is bound up in His analogy of the wineskins. The, gar- the old garment and the new garment and the, the old wineskins and the new wineskins. And you read that. Let's look at that again. In verse 22, he says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, we don't, we don't keep our wine in wineskins anymore, so this is a little bit... Uh, It's not immediately relevant for us to understand this, but the concept is not that difficult. Apparently, when you uh, uh, goat skins would have been used for wine to make into wine skins, and as you put new wine in there, there is a fermentation process that happens that stretches the gases that are released, stretches the wine skin, which the wine skin has the ability to do. But once a wine skin has already been stretched, if you drank all that wine, you try to put more wine into it where it goes into that process of fermentation and releasing of gas again, it, it's already been stretched, so it bursts. And the wine skin is ruined, and the new wine is poured out. 
so neither one are enjoyed. So what's the, what's the analogy that Jesus is making? He's essentially saying, your old wineskins are like your old traditions or like the way in which the covenant in the past has been administered. You can't fit this new wine into the old wineskins. You need new wineskins for that. He's inviting them to stop and ponder the practice that they've engaged in for centuries and centuries. Now, this really shouldn't be a surprise to them, for the practices that they've been engaging in throughout the Old Testament were always meant to give way to something greater. The writer of Hebrews writes this whole book to explain that. Look, you follow Moses, the prophet, but one greater than Moses is here. Moses brought the Word from God down to you from the mountain. Jesus is the Word of God that has been given to you. In the Old Covenant, you approached God through the sacrifice of animals as you bring them to the priest who offers them before the Lord. But Jesus is the true high priest, and all those animals and their sacrifice could never really take away your guilt and sin. That's why you had to do it again and again and again and again. But Jesus died once for all, offering His own blood on the altar. He is the sacrifice that all of those animals were meant to finally give way to when the reality came. That's what He's saying. You have been administering your relationship with God by the way of the old covenant, which was right at the time, but they were always meant to give way when the Messiah came to the truer reality, and now I'm here. So don't let your old traditions, your old administering ways of the covenant stand in the way of seeing the Messiah who is before you, the true bridegroom, the true one who is the Lord of the Sabbath, the giver of rest. He invites you to have a relationship with Him in which He gives you rest. Rest from what? From all your labors that you do in order to try and please God, to try to earn your righteousness. Because by the way, that's what those things were. By keeping the Sabbath, by fasting as the Pharisees did, they saw those as badges of their own righteousness. That's what they saw them as. So, for example, in Luke 18, when Jesus tells the parable about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector coming to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee says, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like this man. I give 10%. I fast twice a week. Here's my resume. Here's my badges of righteousness. And that's, of course, the danger what tradition can become. Tradition can become, rather than the means by which we draw close to God, they become the means by which we actually distance ourselves from God. For once those become badges of your righteousness and not signs of something God desires to do for you, they put your relationship with God under your control. It becomes a transactional relationship. And you know those relationships. It's the kind of we have with somebody that we, we, we go to the store with. We do a transaction. Here's our relationship. I give you money, you give me goods. And we, we often, through our traditions, reduce our relationship with God to that kind of relationship. God, I will do this for you, therefore you give me this blessing. And that doesn't foster intimacy, by the way, which the Lord desires. It fosters the arm-length kind of relationship. And 
I'll give a couple of examples of how it's easy to do this. In the church, we fall into this very easily because we want to be in control of our own relationship with the Lord. So let's think about, for example, the, the, the tradition or the habit of weekly worship. We can do one of, we can do one of two things. One, we can come, if, it's, if it's our relationship with God is transactional, then we only come when we feel like we need Him. So it's a very sporadic coming. When we feel like we need Him, we want to perform that transaction, we go, we receive our blessing, we're good for another while. Or we come every week, we come every week, and we feel proud of that, think this is our badge of righteousness that we're bringing before God, it's transactional. So whether you're coming every week thinking this is my badge of righteousness, or you're only coming when you feel the need of it, you're both relating to the Lord in a transactional kind of way. When all the time He's inviting you to know Him intimately. Why do we come to worship? Why do we seek to live godly lives? Why do we seek to obey what Jesus tells us, how He tells us to live? It's not to perform the transaction so that He will bless us. It's the way in which we show our affection for the Lord. We come to worship not because it's a duty, because it's the one place we get to meet the Lord in an intimate way. When you think about all the things that we do in worship and how it's set up, it is a dialogue when we come to the, before the Lord in worship. You'll notice that's why we have these responsive readings. It's God speaks and we respond. It's a dialogue that we get to have with God. We're entering into a time of prayer before the Lord. We come to the table each week, which points us ultimately to a future wedding feast a celebration when God is uniting with His people. And as we come, this is a foretaste of that union we get to enjoy. It shows us how much God has paid in order to secure this relationship, leaving nothing left for us to contribute except our affection and receive our, 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 the blessing of that uh, enjoyment of that relationship. So, this morning, as we look at this passage, I simply want to ask you, where is your relationship with the Lord? What is it like? Is it transactional? Or is it intimate? He has already paid the price. There's no transactions left to be made. He's already demonstrated His love, invites you to enjoy what he calls communion with him. When we come to that table, we recognize the Lord's presence. So where is your relationship with the Lord? Do you wear your obedience as badges of righteousness on your sleeve? Or do you come because there is no better place to be? I want to invite you to think about the compassionate invitation the Lord has given as He reveals Himself as the bridegroom and as the giver of rest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the Gospels, the good news that they put before us, the invitation week after week to enter into a genuine, intimate relationship with You. You have already performed all the righteous requirements that were needed to be declared holy and you have passed that righteousness on to those who trust you. 
so that we no longer seek to obey because we must, but because we delight to, for we desire to please you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hone this relationship, to eagerly desire this relationship. In Jesus' name, amen.